I hate this artificial delineation between brand marketing and performance marketing. What human being experiences a brand or marketing that way? Ah, I see their new television campaign is out, building their brand attribute and this reason to believe. Hmm, interesting. I've formed a more intimate relationship with this company. A little bit later, I'm on Twitter. Oh, they've got a special offer that is 20% off this week. I should click on this and activate. Nobody does that. That's not the way anybody actually has a consumer journey. Welcome to Building Better CMOs, a podcast about how marketers can get smarter and stronger. I am Greg Stewart, CEO of the nonprofit MMA Global. That voice you heard at the top is Mike Roethlisberger, who is the Chief Commercial Officer at sports tech and online gambling company, FanDuel. He is also on the board at the MMA, and before he got to FanDuel in 2018, he was the head of marketing at Amazon. Today on Building Better CMOs, Mike and I are gonna talk about the state of sports gambling in the US and how FanDuel became what he calls the most successful second screen experience ever. We're also going to cover why marketing is fundamental driver of growth, when you should decide to do the opposite of what the numbers are telling you, and why brand marketing is performance marketing, just on a different time scale. This podcast is all about the challenges that markers face and how do you most effectively drive growth today? Mike Rosselsberger from FanDuel is gonna tell us right after this. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Mike Raffensperger, so great to see you today. I'm glad you could join me here on Building Better CMOs. Greg, it's great to see you. Let's just jump right in here because I think there's gonna be fun. So listen, Mike's with FanDuel, if people didn't sort of read the blurb on the cover or whatever, so in the episode, and we'll talk a bit more about, about FanDuel, but Mike, I think I could go right to the point. This is a show for CMOs. You're actually not titled CMO. You were, but you're not titled currently CMO. What is your current title? My current title is Chief Commercial Officer. The role I had prior to this at FanDuel was Chief Marketing Officer. And so marketing is under my remit. So marketing is a part of what I oversee. I also see sort of all of our commercial P&Ls, which drive the revenue line of our business. We also kind of have a media entity that runs a number of different channels, including a linear television channel that's under me. So... My job essentially is top and top line revenue and how we get there. Said colloquially, I'm in charge of making sure we make enough money while not spending too much throughout the process, which in my category tends to be a little bit of a death trick. (laughs) Okay, well, we're going to get into some more of that, then that'll be good. So it's not just that you wanted to set a tone 
that the head of marketing needs to be commercially oriented, although I know that's a point for you. You've incorporated some new responsibilities that that title supports, I guess. Is that right? That's right. I mean, I'm, we'll get into it, I'm sure. But yes, I'm a huge philosophical believer that marketing is not a cost center. It is a growth driver. And fundamentally, if you're going to believe that, also I need to take the accountability of that growth. And so it helps you really earn that full seat at the table and understand the true drivers of the P&L. And so, yes, I did take on that remit. I think that's why we got together, because I heard that in the conversation you and I initially had. And by the way, just for the audience, Mike does sit on uh, the board of the MMA. But, you know, that's the thematic of everything the MMA does. What are we doing to make marketing better? What are we doing to build better CMO? So the point of the podcast, the point of the organ of, of MMA Global. So let's talk a little bit about the category you're in, because not everybody knows your category. So sports betting. Let's talk about sort of what's happened with FanDuel. There's at least one other biggish competitor out there. Can you give some people an orientation to um, what the business and what's changed in the world that made FanDuel possible? Sure. So we are the biggest online real money gaming company in the United States. So we run online sports betting, fantasy sports, casino, things like blackjack slots. And really the seminal event was about five years ago the Supreme Court made a decision that allowed states to regulate and tax online wagering, online sports betting of their own accord. Previously, that was illegal across the United States, except in Nevada. For those who maybe don't live in a sports betting state or don't follow the sports industry quite as closely, it's kind of similar to the repeal of prohibition. There just are very, very few instances in history where a huge, formerly gray or black market went white. And just to give you a sense, our projections are at maturity, I mean, the industry will be kind of generating a TAM of about $40 billion. And five years ago, that number was essentially zero. And so the speed, the intensity of kind of the category growth is really incredible. And again, it stems from the fact that we can speak plainly, people were betting right. prior to that Supreme Court decision. And so now that they have legal, safe, regulated, fun, innovative, options like FanDuel has really spurred a tremendous amount of market adoption. So I've been busy. How many states are legal today? There are currently a little over 30 states that have some form of legal sports betting. The real kind of consumer demand is in online, however, and that is only in 17 states. And so we're still, you know, we're in a little, I think it's something about 35% of the population of the country lives in an online legal state there's still sort of more to go than there has been to date. What are the biggest states? Just give me like top two, three, just, you know, to be of a sense. New York's by far the biggest. After that, probably Pennsylvania, Michigan, New Jersey, Virginia. Is this in any way tied to the sort of proliferation of casinos across the country tied to each other or no, nothing related? Societal change, maybe that's it? It's related loosely. You know, what I'd say is historically land-based casinos, the MGMs, the Caesars of the world have been a little reticent about online gambling. I think understandably, there was a worry that that might cannibalize their land-based brick and mortar business. Really, over the past few years, that has flipped on its head. I think they've found a perhaps unintuitively, but it's actually good for their brick and mortar business. And independently, you know, they're also participating in the online marketplace and interested in the revenues associated with that. So it is certainly separate. And there are still interests that FanDuel doesn't participate in, but the land-based companies do in opening physical casinos. 
generally speaking, though, I think the industry, the gaming industry at large is fairly aligned that there's a desire to continue to legislate, regulate and open new legal online markets. So five years ago was kind of the demarcation. But when was FanDuel actually started and what was its story of getting going? A couple of founders, VC backed or come out of a bigger company? How did it get going? No, this was over 10 years ago, I think closer to 15. Few founders, I think, connected at South by Southwest and had an idea of online predictive games. I think it actually started around politics, evolved pretty quickly towards sports. And I think there was this observation that people really love fantasy sports. But up until that point, it had been sort of a season long game. Football season kicks off and you draft your team alongside some friends and you kind of got to wait for the whole season at that time, 16, now 17 weeks to end before there was a conclusion to the game. There was a winner and a loser and it was fun, but it was a very long time scale. I think the insight was with daily fantasy sports, which is what FanDuel pioneered and was the first to create, was that you could have those season contests, that draft experience and that competitive nature. And you can actually do that on individual game days or on a weekly basis in the NFL's example for every Sunday. And so we sort of put a transaction layer on that, helped manage those prize pools and pulled people together into all sorts of new kinds of fantasy contests. And FanDuel was the first to do that. Got it. Got it. Got it. So where's the business today? If it's going to get the 40 billion in revenue eventually, where is it today? Is there any good figures for that? Yeah. I mean, to be clear, it's a 40 billion market, TAM at maturity. Okay. The business is in a really great place. Obviously, won't get into specific financials, but Suffice it to say, FanDuel is the number one player in the market. We operate somewhere between 40 and 50% market share in sports betting. That's about 2x our next closest competitor. So we're really proud of the leadership position we have here, not just commercially, although obviously that's a part of it, but also how we're trying to do the right thing by partnering with leagues and media companies to evolve this new market that is growing very quickly, as I suggested, and do it in the right way. We also take things like responsible gaming and our part in making sure our platform is well-managed and that we're putting the right protections in place for our customers, our players, our communities that we're investing in these topics, and that we're also really proud to be leading in that space. We were the first to do a number of different initiatives on that front and thinking about the long-term health of this business and how it interplays with sports at large. You know, listen, sports is kind of an interesting business in the last few years is consumers have migrated from, you know, there's been a fair amount of cord cutting. They moved from sort of linear and then especially with the pandemic now, you know, streaming just got all lit up. Everybody had a product at what seemed to be just the perfect time to launch a new streaming service. This is my impression that in the world of perfect timing, it was perfect timing, it seemed. But sports was always the thing that says, hey, you can't get live sports anyplace else. Sports media is now in another iteration of sort of um, change. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on in sports as it pertains to sort of TV entertainment now? I think that media is certainly going through a period of change. As you said, more and more viewers are shifting to streaming. Sports is going through also a period of change and somewhat through that streaming transition and, and also just younger people consuming sports in different ways, some of which being the full game, some of which being more bite-sized, snack-sized highlights, et cetera, the YouTubeification of viewership. And so I think at all of it, FanDuel is in a really interesting place where fundamentally One of the value ways that any company drives is sort of the attention that it has. And I think that is one thing that FanDuel has found a really interesting trick to. In some ways, one of my favorite descriptions of FanDuel is not 
the biggest online real money gaming company in the world. It says one of the most successful second screen experiences in the world. And what I mean by that is second screen in the media business is really meaning your phone. So you're sitting down, you're watching TV, and you're also on your phone doing something. And a lot of companies have tried to figure how to sort of really crack or unlock that dual two-screen viewing experiences. There's not many that have been successful. I think Twitter is one of those companies. I think FanDuel is one of the others. Interesting. And what's happening to the sports sort of generally? I mean, do uh, the sports league still as dominant as they're ever going to be? Live sports still getting a fair amount of viewing to it? Streaming services come in and bought a lot of rights. I don't follow that as closely. I'm sure you do, but there's been a lot of movement there. And then I think there's also some stuff going on with regional sports, isn't there? There is. So famously, Amazon has gotten involved in the NFL. They're now the exclusive home of Thursday Night Football. It's the first time the NFL has moved to a streaming platform in that way. Similarly, Google just purchased the Sunday Ticket Rights, which is sort of a premium subscription product. Previously, it had been with DirecTV, AT&T. I think you see more and more of carving of rights, which is something sports leagues have often done across multiple companies. And the streaming players becoming really meaningful at the table with more traditional carriers like the broadcast networks or cable networks like Turner Sports. There's this other overlay, which is sort of national versus regional rights. And you think about sports like basketball and the NBA, baseball, the MLB, they have those national packages that air across different cable and broadcast networks. But most, I think something like 90% of the viewership actually happens regionally. So there's only a handful of national games a week, but they play a lot more. And those are broadcast on these regional sports networks. The challenge has been, along with the whole industry, there's cord cutting going on, meaning less and less people are paying for traditional MVPD subscription pay television services. And those regional sports networks, which sort of previously were kind of part and parcel of that bundle, are getting really squeezed to the point that Sinclair Broadcasting, which is a major holder of a number of regional sports networks around the country, actually recently filed for bankruptcy. Oh, my Part of that driving force is the challenge, real challenge, the regional sports model is undergoing. And so it's an unbelievably dynamic time, I think, for regional sports right now. And I think the leagues, the NBA and the MLB in particular, are thinking about how do they do right by their fans, right by the viewers, keeping that product in market, but also sort of re-envisioning as people are moving more and more viewers to digital, to streaming. What is the right way they do this? And notably, what's hard for them is How do they do this on a market by market basis? Because it's not all the markets all at once. Some markets are in a healthier places than others. And so it becomes quite challenging. And I think is a really, really dynamic and interesting time for the sports media business at large. Is there a point in time you look down the road, you think that FanDuel could pick up some TV rights? You know, FanDuel getting in the mix with Fox and CBS and Amazon and Apple, I got some coin to spend. I don't know if I got that kind of coin. And I'm also not sure FanDuel is really the right (laughs) exact home for rights in that regard. Now, we happen to have a really large digital regionally driven business and with relationships with millions of sports fans around the country. I think we're a great potential partner of leagues, of media companies, a way of helping connect the discovery problem that I talked about with different regions, different markets. So I think there's a role to play cutting a billion dollar check for MBA rights. Probably not. That said, 
we are an active player in live rights. Fun fact about FanDuel. We air more live sports than any other company in America. How does that happen? The overwhelming majority of that is horse racing. Oh. I operate a linear television channel as well as a digital media platform called FanDuel TV. And on that, we have over 24 hours a day of live sports, horse racing from all over the country, the best domestic tracks all over America. We've also gone out and acquired what I will lovingly call underloved or undersupported sports. So international basketball, Taiwanese mixed martial arts, international soccer, some of the longer tail things, darts, pickleball, We're working through some different deals. But suffice it to say, these are places that have some trouble in a traditional broadcast environment. It's going to be hard for a big broadcast network to sort of get the mass audience around these things it would need for the advertising and affiliate model to prove out a business case. But for me, where I'm able to introduce great watch and wager opportunities to my audience, I can do that. And I can do that in a way that is really a vested interest between the league and an operator like me. And so we've gone out and acquired over 3,000 hours of those live sports, sort of like, you know, other category. And I think we've seen some really interesting engagement from our audiences where we're trialing new things like that. So anyways, the short answer to your question is I'm not going to compete for NFL rights anytime soon. Right. But, but you know, maybe more deeper international football markets. Who knows? Right. You might incrementalize your way into at least some of that as you have already. Very interesting. Hey, last one just kind of occurred to me. Interesting. There's a lot of attention being given certainly to college sports and the players actually receiving some of the compensation that the universities were getting. You or FanDuel have a perspective on some of those changes going on in college sports? You're referring to kind of the name, image, likeness, NIL deals with student athletes being able to be compensated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, look, I'll put my FanDuel hat on and then I'll give you more of my sports fan personal answer. With the FanDuel hat on, I think that college athletics are a huge part of the adult consumption of sports across America. And we're have a thriving sports betting business around NCAA, basketball, football, on down the list. Actually, Women's March Madness did particularly well this year and and many multiples in terms of year-on-year growth from a betting activity. That said, we're very committed to not partnering with athletic departments themselves. FanDuel is not an appropriate company to do name and image likeness deals with college athletes, just given the nature of what we do. And frankly, those athletes aren't 21 years of age, which is what you need to be to gamble. And so we've made the commitment. We don't advertise on college campuses. We don't market to college students. We're not going to do NIL deals with students. And that's just sort of the right way to run our business. You know, taking the FanDuel hat off personally, I think college athletics is in an interesting space. And the reality is it's a big business. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And I understand they're students and there are certain aspects of what you want to keep a non-professional environment. But I think it's good the kids get a bite at the pie. So on a personal level, I would be a fan. Let's jump into the sort of main topic here. Okay. So listen, you get it. You sit on the board of the MMA. MMA is all about unlocking the power of marketing. So I think it would be good to hear from you. Just kind of let's dig in. What do you think that marketing and or CMOs, marketers, might not necessarily understand? Like part of that sort of might get into your unique perspective on the world and you being successful as a now formerly CMO, but still running marketing. What do you think we don't really fully get? It's hard to paint with a broad brush. I think every CMO, every company, 
is a little bit different, but generally it's referencing back what I said earlier. Marketing is not a cost center and it's not just a line in the P&L between revenue and earnings. It is a fundamental driver of growth and marketing dollars are investments. And I think, yes, we talk about ROI and again, every industry is different and there's different levels of fidelity on how easy it is to sort of measure that. But gone are the days of make a really clever creative suite that is executed with a great media agency buy and it's about pricing and buying certain demographics and penetration and reach and frequency. Those are technicals. They're not marketing. And so to truly have a senior role in shaping the outcome of an enterprise, there needs to be an accountability. And it is, in my humble view, the key commercial driver of an enterprise. And really great marketing is the difference between the number one and number two, three, four plus player. The CMO's job is not to be the best marketeer at the company. The CMO's job is to be a member of the senior leadership team with accountability for driving growth of the enterprise. So, Mike, this is kind of interesting. I've told this story a lot. There was a number of years ago where I sat with the CMOs of some of the biggest companies in a closed-door session, and just to name names, because none of these people are in their jobs right now, so I can do that. But, you know, it was a CMO of General Motors and T-Mobile and Duncan Brands was there and Chobani, a few others, right? And it was interesting. We asked them a question. We said, what is the role of marketing? And this is probably like five, six years ago. I don't remember any of them really saying growth. What was interesting about that conversation is that everybody had a different answer. Some said it was the voice of the customer. Some said it was customer experience. Some said it was protecting the brand, you know, but there wasn't a focus. It seems like there was a big new focus in marketing around the orientations of growth. Does that feel right to you? I think it's changed. I don't think there's any role in the C-suite that has undergone more change in the last 20 years than the CMO. I do fundamentally think 20 years ago, steward of the brand, voice inside of the customer, more functional. It was a functional definition. And I just think it has evolved. And some of it is how much the function has evolved. It's not just creative and insight and media buying. You have to be a technologist to really understand the depth of digital technology, ad tech, martech, et cetera. Great marketing that doesn't live up to the product or the customer experience is crap. And so you really need to be able to influence that, understand the full funnel CX of what somebody is. You need to be a great partner with finance and forecasting and what is the shape of things? What are our assumptions, risks and opportunities? There's just a tremendously broad collection of work and knowledge that needs to be brought to the role. And again, fundamentally, the CEO isn't really looking for great marketing. He's looking or she's looking for a bigger business. And he needs people on the leadership team to take accountability for where that's going to come from. And as I look at a traditional C-suite, there's no better person than the CMO to take that accountability. You know, Mike, it's funny you said there's actually an interesting study out there by, uh, I know Kim Whitler worked on, I'm pretty sure Neil Morgan, Dr. Neil Morgan was also involved in this. So Dr. Kim Whitler, uh, Dr. Neil Morgan. 
And their analysis was looking at boards of directors that had CMOs on them or marketing people on them versus those who didn't. And they found that those with marketing people versus the usual finance, legal kind of orientation had 3% higher growth than those companies who didn't have a marketer on the board. So it kind of gets at that, right? Marketers are about growth. They're the ones who are saying like, I get all the risk assessment, everybody, but what are we doing to grow the business? Yeah. And I, I'll paint with an unfair brush because I've worked with plenty of incredibly talented CFOs that are also really growth oriented, but we can speak plainly, often a more risk sensitive profile, right? And you can also yep. manage a business, whether it's legal risk mitigation or financial risk mitigation, or how does it perfectly fit on an Excel sheet? And that doesn't often create the space for growth conversations. And so again, I, I just think the nature of where marketing sits in the organization, which does, by the way, have huge voice and role and accountability to play in the things that you mentioned, a brand is an asset. By the way, it's a long-term growth asset. And your customers and understanding what they really want and they really need are an incredible engine of growth. And so, I won't belabor the point other than to say, happy to see the results of that study and uh, my fellow marketing professionals driving positive outcomes in their board seats. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you actually started out, I think you got a business degree, business undergrad degree, if I, if I remember right. And then you want to make TV shows and movies. Is that right? <laughs> I did. I, I went, uh, my undergrad was in business administration and did a minor in broadcasting communications. I moved to New York over 20 years ago. And yeah, I thought I was going to make movies and television. Writing, producing was sort of uh, the loose vision. I immediately sold out uh, <laughs> because that is a very <laughs> difficult path. And uh, I pivoted into marketing and advertising pretty quickly after. But I guess, you know, listen, you started with an orientation towards, I would say, the content creation seems to not sort of capture it, but, you know, but in an orientation to create film and other experiences for people. But you have such a business orientation to the way you talk about it. Like I almost would have thought you'd walked in with an MBA in the way you're coming at this or a background in economics. Where did you get your kind of commercial orientation or such a significant commercial orientation? You know, I, I did do a residency at Columbia. It was part of the journalism school, but it was specifically a, a business residency, looking at the economics of the media business at the time. Again, oh. huge disruption. That newspaper and print business not being what it once was. And a lot of that was around the evolution of that. What are new business models? How can you do it? And, and, and some of that, I think, was a really first and foremost, just a really rewarding educational experience. Also, you know, help round out some of my thinking. I'd also just say, I've got a creative brain. Yes, I like content creation. But even then, the producing was an interest of mine. And producing is a lot about dollars and cents and making sure the budget pans out. And so I humbly think one of my strengths are that I can pivot pretty well between left and right brain activities. I'm comfortable talking about creative concepts and storytelling and brand building. And I'm equally, maybe even more comfortable on performance. And some of that also just comes, you know, as I moved out of agency world, I went in-house at DirecTV in a very performance marketing and digital strategy oriented role. And it was really about okay, you've got a sign-up funnel. How many people started today? How many people got part of the way through? How many people got the whole way through? Once they got the whole way through, what is the LTV prediction of that customer? And so 
just a real good grounding in the unit economics of what business looks like. And that's sort of grown from there. Got it, got it, got it. So what's your orientation as you work with your team then around producing growth? Talk me through a little bit the strategies you have, the focus you try to put on things, and what you sort of suggest to the teams in terms of where they put their focus to produce this commercial orientation to marketing. And what do you, especially, to, I mean, you could just talk in general, but if you think also there's some of it that you think is really differential, what you hear from other CMOs, that'd be interesting to me too. Yeah, it's it's kind of a huge question, Greg. Right? Like it's it it's, is <laughs> that was a, that was a big one. I should have I should have parsed that down for you. I thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. No, I mean it, it. It's I don't have a silver bullet, right? Like okay. follow these five simple steps to reinvigorate your marketing team to drive enterprise growth. It, it's part culture. It's part orientation. You know, look, the boring answers are understand key metrics, north star orient the team towards those performance management routines of, you know, when are you looking at it? You know, when are we taking actions and how I think a test and learn, not just culture, but rigorous roadmap of what that looks like. I use this language a lot. You know, we are stewards of the company's resources. And the expectation is we are stewarding that in a way that is returning profitably for the company. And so whether that's a media dollar that you can understand the cost per action that it drove, or whether that's a creative approach that maybe, hey, we're going to A-B test and understand which has the best outcome of this, whether it's a sign-up flow that, again, you're monitoring and managing and A-B testing on a regular basis. It's, I just think, a culture, probably, of the way that you orient towards kind of the role of the investments that you're making as a company. I'm not sure that's a uh, brilliantly, you know, paint by numbers example that your listeners can follow, but it, you know, it's it's sort of in the DNA of of the way the culture and the team that we have at FanDuel. How do you integrate then the building of a brand into all that too? How do you and the team sort of conceptualize that? Because FanDuel is a pretty strong brand. I mean, it's not like that's been ignored. Of course not, because I hate, hate, and have fought against this artificial delineation between brand marketing and performance marketing. And there's okay. sometimes, and I know people that even split their budgets up, right? Like, oh, here's the pot of money that's yeah. for brand. And, and, you know, we'll measure that based on like YouGov surveys. And then here's all the actual hardworking dollars that we'll measure on like performance and digital media and click the rates and da, 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 da. What human being experiences a brand or marketing that way? Ah, I see their new television campaign is out building their brand attribute and this reason to believe. Hmm, interesting. I've formed a more intimate relationship with this company. A little bit later, I'm on Twitter. Oh, they've got a special offer that is 20% off this week. I should click on this and activate. Nobody does that. That's not the way anybody actually has a consumer journey. So I, I hate splitting up the budgets. And I'm a big believer that brand marketing, which I don't even like the term, but brand marketing is performance marketing over a longer period of time. And so I recognize that there are some campaigns, efforts, initiatives that we expect to have a shorter return profile. And there are others that we have a longer return profile. And I'm also generally a believer that even the most promotional newsletter circular starburst 25% off today only 
that has a role to play in building the brand too, and vice versa. Super expensive, star-studded, sponsored you know, Super Bowl commercials has a role in driving performance. And, and I like to think of it more of a timeline of return. And it's portfolio theory. Much like you have an investment portfolio of stocks, bonds, equity, alternative, all of them have different risk and different potential reward, different timeframes of return. I think you should be thinking about marketing investments in a very similar way. Can you share the brand strategy for FanDuel? What is the positioning of the business? Just, uh, I just want to anchor towards that. Yeah, you know, look, I won't get into every aspect of the architecture, but fundamentally, a trusting, welcoming, professional place. You think about my category, right? It has historically been literally bookies, guys on the corner, or gray market <laughs> operations run out of Antigua that only take Bitcoin that you may never get your money back. Trust matters a lot to my category professionalism, doing this in a way that I think is building an approachable brand for more people most of the time. I think FanDuel, perhaps humbly, other, more than others in the category, has built a brand that is welcoming to a more diverse set of people. And I think we're kind of seeing that again in, in the numbers of what we're commanding with market share and the kinds of people who are trialing our product. Okay, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back after this with Mike Rossesberger. Thanks for listening to Building Better CMOs. If you have a second, I'd like to ask a quick favor. Take your phone out and share this episode with someone else. It's all about making marketers better. You could text it to a coworker or a friend, easy. Or you can post it on LinkedIn and tell people why you liked it. There's one other thing that you can do to help building better CMOs. And that's to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. There's a link to do it in the show notes. However you support us, I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Greg Stewart. Now back to the show. This is Building Better CMOs. Let's get back to my conversation with Mike Rossensberger, the Chief Commercial Officer at FanDuel. There's some common thesis out there, I think, by a lot of marketers that they need to build an emotional connection. That's kind of how brand often gets articulated. Do you try to push an emotional connection with FanDuel and its customers, or is that not really, is that not really the vernacular that you would use to talk about it? For sure. I think it's the real raison d'etre that we exist in people's lives, right? We're not we provide gambling services is not a very inspirational or connective <laughs> brand, right? I think we operate under the brand promise that we make every moment more. And I think that sort of experience of amplification, amplifying moments is really true to the role we play in people's lives, right? Kind of one of the best hype men sitting next to you at a sports game or Heck, at the dentist's office when you're bored for five minutes and want something to do. So you spin up a hand of blackjack or you take a look at uh, tonight's game and what the odds are. We take incredible moments in sports, make them even better. We take, frankly, kind of boring moments in sports, make those better too. And some of our other suite of products, you know, whether it's iGaming or some of our skills-based products where you can play games like Wheel of Fortune against other real people for money. You make the quiet moments in your day more fun too. That is the emotional connection that I think we're, we're looking to build with people is help make every moment more, play a little bit of that hype man role in the good and the indifferent moments in your life. So uh, is your team responsible also for customer experience, by the way? We do not have a formal CX organization in FanDuel. And I actually okay. think that's a good thing. 
because the reality is your customer experience is not just marketing or the customer acquisition funnel or our CRM campaigns. It's not just our product and the way our UX is laid out and what our homepage looks like. It's not just our CS channel where when you want to chat with us, if you've got a problem, it's not just risk and trading, which is really the bookmaking, how we set the lines and odds. It is across all of it. And I think what we do have, we have a set of leadership principles at the company that we operate under. And essentially, it's a tool for our hiring practice, how we promote people, the way we talk to each other, the way we make decisions. And one of our most important leadership principles is that everything begins with customer. And to speak plainly, our revenue comes from our customer's delight. It is not the other way around. And so as we think about Roadmap planning, marketing campaigning, offer construction is a big one. Making sure offers are straightforward, clear, easy to use. That it begins with the customer, not a commercial model of, you know, hey, this one's slightly less expensive or slightly better return than that one. Really putting the customer at the center of the way we make decisions. And so that, I think we use more of a guiding principle as opposed to a formal organizational structure, which can be hard, right? Because then you've got this sort of other entity that is trying to influence outcomes in marketing, product, CS, engineering, et cetera, et cetera. I think we felt it was more instructive and more successful if it is embedded in the fabric of the way we make decisions, regardless of what department you're in. Where were you in the in the list of CMOs that came into FanDuel? Were you, uh, you weren't the first CMO, were you? I assume there was somebody before you. I was not. Prior to you know me joining the company, uh, there were other CMOs. I did join before sports betting was officially legalized in the United States. Um, so this was back in the DFS days. The question I was going to ask you, and I'm not here to comment on sort of previous regimes. I'm not getting into that business or in different cycles. I'm trying to stay away from that. But I'm just curious to just your sense of how you felt marketing really needed change for this new environment. I'm trying to get at sort of how you looked at the world differently and what you brought in to really grow in the way that you have. I think historically, and I won't speak anything but admiration of predecessors built the company to where yeah. it was. But there was a bit of a, to get back to our brand conversation, almost all the marketing prior to my arrival was about winning and specifically winning money and specifically winning very high prize pool, jackpot, like a million dollar kind of outcomes. Appealing to greed as, as a human motivation at some level, I guess, right? Yeah. A bit. And the reality is if everything begins with the customer, one person will win a million dollars every week, hmm. but hundreds of thousands of people will not. Right. And so it probably wasn't holding true to the brand promise of FanDuel. What I can tell you is when you play with FanDuel, it's going to amplify your day. Win, lose, or draw, it's going to be exciting and it's fun. And that's a more, I think, honest promise. I think there was also just broadening the aperture of the way we talked about it, thought about it, creating new things like free-to-play gaming, which was more recreational, bringing more casual sports fans, women, others into the category. I'd say I maybe brought a, a bit of a, a different tack on the reason to believe at the ethos of what the brand is. And also, I think, a, a different maybe altitude in our role and who we want to speak with from a demographic perspective. And again, I, I've worked really hard to build what I think is a big tent brand that feels like a place for me, quote unquote, 
for lots of different kinds of people as opposed to just young sports obsessed men, which is a great demographic, but maybe not the fulsome scope of the opportunity around sports. You know, I think what's interesting about that, I think as I've listened to, I mean, you do really pick up so much about a brand if you listen to their marketing, because that's what they're trying to communicate and who they're trying to position themselves as and, and then deliver against. But if you listen to Vegas, as I've heard the casinos in Vegas, they talk about it as entertainment. They don't really talk about, ga- it's like gambling with a small G, but entertainment with a big E is really their focus. Is that right? And so that's what you were trying to do here? Yeah. I mean, I don't like comparing us to Vegas. Uh, for, that's a, that's a different conversation. One, w- another description of my brand ambition would be through the American sports book of record. And what I mean by that is people should stop referencing a town in the desert when they talk about odds. They should talk about FanDuel. So FanDuel has the line at X or FanDuel has the odds at Y, but that's me being petulant. Your broader point is right. And I do think that respectfully and correctly, the Vegas-based brands understand that it's a lot more than just gambling on how you can maximize the value chain with your customer. Now, obviously for them, they've got lodging and institution, restaurants, alcohol, lots of great ways of, of monetizing tourism and other guests in their properties. But I do think, again, it was a way of making Vegas more approachable. 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was a place dudes went for bachelor parties and naughty things happened. Now it's a family <laughs> tourist destination with magic acts and Grand Canyon tours. Like that's a bigger TAM. And there is an element, yes, of what we're trying to do at FanDuel. And again, I don't really like describing FanDuel as a gambling company. That's not what we are. We're a sports technology entertainment company. And when you set that as the loft, it widens the aperture of what we could achieve. Oh, that's great. Okay. I get it, Mike. Well, well said. I appreciate that. Hey, just one, one last thing in this, in this area here. I know also too, you guys have been incredibly, as I've talked to over the years, uh, a time here with the MMA, you've been very measurement and attribution oriented. In fact, I'm pretty sure you guys have installed multi-touch attribution as a solution. Can you just talk a little bit about, um, if not the details of sort of what you are, what you're doing there, I'd like to just the people to hear more about how you measure, what do you measure, what do you focus on, what are what are kind of key KPIs you think really drive the business around some of the success criteria you've identified. We're a very data driven company. We love metrics. The answer is a chorus of inputs. Yes, we have multi touch attribution. We have last touch attribution. We have macroeconomic kind of media mix modeling. We have survey voice of the customer work. We have brand panels and kind of national YouGov-like dashboarding. We've got individual performance dashboards across conversion funnels, CAC LTV payback. And the answer maybe to the question you're driving at is there is not one answer that pulls all of this together to truly drive growth at the enterprise. It's a chorus of those inputs. I will also say as a giant nerd that you noted likes numbers and business, it can get very easy to let the numbers manage you. And just because something conveniently sits in an Excel sheet does not necessarily make it true or more important than something that does not as easily sit in an Excel sheet. And so I think metrics and giving the team something objective to measure progress around is incredibly important, but creating an org structure and creating space and performance management routines that one can pull various data sets together 
and make an ensemble decision of what you would like to do. And two, not falling into the trap of only managing the things that can be measured perfectly or over-optimizing to things that are easier to measure. And so this is dead center in the bullseye of the fact that marketing as a practice is art and science. And this is the best example of it that I, I think I can come up with. Can you give an example when you guys have said, you know, the numbers are one thing, but we're going to make a, a different decision? Sure. All the time. I'd say there are, on any given week, fluctuations in CAC, payback, how the unit economics of the business are, are faring. And if you were exclusively focused on this is the payback return that we want and we're going to ride the throttle pretty heavily, we'll, we'll go up, we'll go down, you could probably make some overly reactive decisions. But thinking about what's our share of voice in the overall advertising marketplace, what is our aspiration of market share? Where do we sit competitively on a state-by-state -state basis? What are some other kind of unique aspects of a state market, maybe tax rate or other incentives. We don't make decisions exclusively, right, on any one thing. It's about building the brand and building a market share position that we know in our market, an oversized share of the rewards, both market capitalization and EBITDA earnings as a percentage of revenue will go to the number one player. So we're going to be damn sure that we are the number one sports book in America. And at the same time, our investors expect great, good return on the money that we're sending in terms of paybacks. That fundamentally comes down to a lot of the economics of my business. How much money are we spending to acquire and retain customers? And is that a good return? And again, it's balancing, right? That sort of long-term aspiration. It's a different side of the brand performance conversation we had. It's kind of the commercial long-term market share versus short-term unit economics. And it's balancing that too. And so- uh, be probably an example of where numbers say one thing, but we do another because there's other considerations. Listen, you obviously operate in a pretty regulatory environment that creates complexity, same as the for financial services and farm and so on. What is the challenge that really FanDuel most faces beyond the regulatory environment? It is not just a regulated business. It's also a hyper-competitive one. It is, again, uh, we talked about it. It's sort of this immediate activation of a big established market that was formerly gray. And so there's a lot of competitive intensity. And in some cases, I think the industry has made some irrational decisions. And we've had to have the discipline to not follow folks into those irrational decisions, stay true to what we think our value proposition is, building a better mousetrap, being more efficient. Frankly, doing more with less has been a hallmark of our marketing apparatus. We take a lot of pride in the fact that as a cost per download or a for every dollar spent or every dollar bet, how much more comes back in revenue from uh, our player base is more efficient than anybody else in the category. And so that's pretty meaningful, right? Spend less but achieve more is not always an easy trick to pull, particularly in a category that is very aggressive. And so it's been navigating that and continuing to have that for the future. I think that I'm also... I'd add, I'll give you a bonus challenge. Stewarding the long-term health of my business and the industry, right? And we spoke about it earlier. I take very seriously the responsibility that FanDuel has to developing this industry in the right way, 
understanding our role as part of the community as civic participants. And so responsible gaming is something that we make a lot of investments in, whether that's dedicated Marcom advertising. We've set a created a set of tools in our product where people can put deposit limits or time limits on their play. You know, we have many, many dedicated employees uh, oriented towards risk compliance. We're building AI and different sort of like machine learning tools that can look at play pattern behaviors, understand where you know someone's play may be unexpectedly doing something that may not be sustainable. What are the proactive measures we want to take? These are all things that I'm proud of. And I, and I think a lot about the success the alcohol industry had on issues in a similar way. You think 20, 30 years ago, Culturally, drunk driving was very different than it was today. And I think the alcohol industry made a commendable and correct decision to sort of get behind things like friends don't let friends drive drunk, other investments in how they understood, right, their responsibility as an industry to being civic participants. My industry is very young. I don't think we have all the answers here, but I think FanDuel is in a leadership position and a part of what I really want to do is figuring that long term. So that challenge in the context of the competitiveness that I just said, because I think if only FanDuel does something, that's great, but it probably doesn't help a player, probably doesn't help the industry. And so how do we come together as an industry, make the right choices for the long-term health of our businesses? So Mike, let's shift here a little bit to sort of the other core topic I'd like to talk about, like what it means to sort of get to, you know, senior executive, C-suite level. How many employees are there at FanDuel? Give me a sense of scale of the company. A little over 3,000. Yeah, big company, right, okay. I want to understand sort of what it means to get there and then to kind of operate effectively within that for you. Because I, I think a lot of people, if I said to you before, I'm not so sure everybody really understands how complicated it can be, how tricky it can be when politics is a, is a thing, it's not a bad thing, it just is a thing and managing people's expectations and the dynamics and personally operating with the intensity of a business that's in the center. I mean, you know, FanDuel sits in a very public sort of spot, I, I would think too, especially given the regulatory environment. I mean, there's a lot of challenges to that a whole bunch of things. So getting that, I guess, you know, how did you actually get the nod to be CMO of FanDuel? Just, was it just a headhunter found you said, we thought you'd be good for this? Or how did you, how'd you get to that process? And I want to talk about what it means to be effective there. You know, look, the, how did I get the role isn't super interesting story. I was working at Amazon at the time in a entrepreneurial role, pairing online video <laughs> with e-commerce, <laughs> you know, it was super interesting, but it's Amazon, you know, it's like, it's hard to move the needle for a trillion dollar company. And so I knew that I wanted to go to a, a smaller firm, but take a bigger role. I'd had a lot of admiration for what FanDuel had done. There's some interesting connective tissue with my past. So you know, I worked at DirecTV in sort of the heydays of that company where Sunday Ticket and I actually launched a direct-to-consumer OTT product for the NFL under the Sunday Ticket brand. I, again, had a lot of performance marketing chops. I talked about at DirecTV, thinking about the unit economics of a subscriber-like business. Ultimately, it's about CAC over LTV and how do you maximize that ratio and doing so in a competitive environment. So I, you know, I had the technicals. I had a vision and a heart like we talked about for FanDuel on how you widen the aperture of addressability, you know, talking to a, a bigger, more relevant recreational market, changing the sort of brand promise from being focused on winning and money to being a bit more about excitement and amplifying your day. It was also, frankly, just there was a management shakeup going on and timing was right. And I'm a big believer that you got to be hardworking and very talented. You also got to get a little bit lucky. And I knew the Supreme Court decision was winding its way through the court. And no pun intended, I placed a bet 
And that mm-hmm. one has paid off uh, very much with FanDuel. <laughs> Look, that's how I got in the role. Over the past five years, maybe the more interesting story, and, and frankly, I had a ton to learn. You know, I didn't know everything I needed to know. And I, hey, Mike, that's what I wanted to get to. So, so just given that history, I was going to say, okay, so listen, I remember the first time I had to go lead marketing outside of the agency environment. And I was flabbergasted at how complex the role was and how much more they had to do. In fact, I was a little chagrined that I maybe had said anything negative about any of my clients, given the complexities they had. I really, what do you recall having to go, oh, geez, I don't know if I saw that coming. So what do we do about that? Or I don't know, give some orientation there to that. I think that the enormity of what I said from uh, both the technicals and the broader stuff. So on the technicals, you know, understanding how to build a traditional upfront media plan, plus programmatic advertising, plus attribution models, plus sort of conversion funnels in the signup flow, it gets broad. So there was a lot there. There was also a lot just in, again, you're now at the senior table with the CEO, with the rest of the C-suite. You know, she wants XYZ and navigating how you do that and how, you know, sometimes eh, you agree and sometimes you don't. And when do you push back? When do you not? When do you sort of understand how you present things? I'd split my time as a CMO prior to last year when I sort of took the expanded CCO role into two phases. You know, the first phase was honestly me getting confident and comfortable in the big chair. And that's a mix of the depth of the technicals, trying to do something different with the company, being a thought partner with the senior team, and sort of playing that high-low game. The second half, and I'm still learning this today, as again, I I take a GM perspective on the business, and I'm thinking in five-plus-year timelines, not necessarily this quarter or that quarter, it's a really different orientation. And... I will tell you, I said this earlier, my job is not to be the best marketeer at the company or the best commercially minded business person. I got a lot of really smart people that work for me who do that. My job is to help guide and craft the overall team, the enterprise, the company at large. And I will tell you, one thing I have learned, the more higher up you go, The more it's about people, it's about people that work for you. It's about the people you work with. It's about your board. It's about your boss and getting good at having difficult conversations, having collaborative conversations. It's also, you know, I think a real recognition that you need to be able to deploy a lot of different styles in a lot of different contexts to be successful. And I also think sometimes there's this sense that, oh, if I just got to be the CMO, I'd be the boss and people would do what I think and I would fix this and I would fix that and I would do this differently. Ain't going to (laughs) work like that, I promise. One, have the humility to recognize you might not be right. And two, there is no successful department. I don't care if you're the CEO, let alone CMO. It's not just, here's what I want, go do it. You got to cajole influence, suggest, compromise, including with members of your team. It is not a big chair directive job. Language I have occasionally used is a soft Mm. hand on the wheel. Mm. Sometimes it's about being in the chair to understand how you guide the organization and guide the team 
in the right way without making sort of too reactive of decisions. I'm in abstract world, I know. So you should pin me down and make me give you something real. But it, it is, it's nuanced. It's a hell of a lot more about people than you think. And you spend a lot of time on it. You know, I heard somebody tell me once many years ago, they go, listen, Greg, life is only about work and relationships. And by the way, work, just relationships. I never forgot that. I always thought that was really put a focus on what you needed to figure out in the world. Yeah. And I think sometimes myself included, because I'm a you know crippling introvert, people hear statements like that and they hear, oh, politics, like it should just be a meritocracy and it should just be about the quality of the work or the quality of the thinking. And I fell into that, too, because I like battling with ideas. It's not about glad handing, schmoozy, relationship building. Game of Thrones bullshit. That's not what you're talking about. What you're talking about is the reality is any great work of humanity, whether it's selling sports betting or putting a person on the moon, only happens through collaborative enterprise of a whole bunch of people. And there is no way to get things done through a whole bunch of people than being good at dealing with people. <laughs> like it is just, that is the irreducible simplicity of it. Hey, Mike, you know what that sounds like? That sounds like making a movie or a TV show. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Maybe in my, the second arc of my career, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pan I think a lot of it. Listen, I hang around with some people from that space, the uh, production space broadly. And, um, you know, listen, those are teams that come together for a single purpose of doing something creatively driven, right? Or uh, whatever. And they come together, then they break apart and they go work in other teams. And they mix and match teams. But people don't generally sort of work for, not often, sometimes, but for a single company. Like they're they're moving around a lot. It's always very interesting. And that does require that you build up a sense of immediate trust and that you can communicate with people. People like working with you. I mean, there's a lot of that collaboration. It's sort of a good model. You know, can be challenging. I think it's movie making. I think it's the president of the United States. I think it's yeah. NASA. I think it's sports betting, Coca-Cola, ABC. I, I don't care what it is. I don't know. Leading your church group, there is no endeavor involving two or more people that doesn't require an element of being good with people. And the more people it requires, the more good, quote unquote, you need to be at it. What do you think it is for you being good at working with people? Like, what does that look like for you? Like, what do you try to do? How do you kind of approach people in that regard? Oh, you should ask my team, who I'm sure would say I fail at this all the time. So, <laughs> Mine you know. too, but I'm looking for kind of a, an orientation or a philosophy there. You know, look, as a manager, I'm a believer that my job is to hire people smarter than me, get them in a role and to clear roadblocks out of their way to go do that smart thing I hired them to do. Now, that may be an internal roadblock that they don't see about themselves, and that's a coaching thing. That may be an internal sort of organizational roadblock of other departments, and it may be an external one where something in the market, like, and my job is to kind of come alongside them and, and help clear those roadblocks. As a leader, I try to set a you know, inspirational vision of what we're doing, that the tribe we're a part of, what we're trying to achieve, why it matters, the role we play in people's lives and the role we play in, you know, our responsibility to the enterprise and creating shareholder value. And, you know, back to, uh, I try to, 
my team, I'm sure, would say I fail on this on the daily, but soft hand on the wheel. It's about steering and guiding, especially at a company my size, trying to do what we're trying to do. You have to stay agile, reactive, test and learn. It's not about the day-to-day routines, but from a interfacing with people, right? I think it's understanding where they're coming from, listening more than your speak, ask more questions than you make statements, and guide. I am very imperfect at there this, you go. That's but what, I think that is that is where I'm at. Yeah, I was going to say, that's why I get it wrong every day. <laughs> exactly. But, the, but I appreciate the goal. Sorry there, Mike, I cut you off a little bit. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, not at all. Just to say it is about bringing a collection of people together, orient them towards a shared vision, recognize everybody might have a slightly different idea on how we get to that vision, and then using the wisdom of the crowds to sort of come to a call and drive it through. You know, the other thing I will say that maybe is more useful to your listeners technically, I'm a big believer in leadership principles. So at FanDuel, we we have 10 of them. I spoke about earlier. One of them is everything begins with the customer. Another that I think helps in this sort of dynamic, competitive, fast-moving space where people have different ideas or believers in disagree, then commit meaning Mm. everyone at the company's responsibility is to speak up if you disagree with a planned course of action. But once a decision is made on where we're going to go, everybody commits to making that as successful as possible. Another one we love, probably our favorite, is stay humble, stay hungry. Very conscious we're the number one player in the space. All that means is we got a bigger target on our back. And so not resting on the fact that What we've accomplished today is something we should be proud of. How do we stay humble, stay hungry to achieve more and on down the list? And I think that is a collection of things that if you you use the language, you incorporate it into your day to day decision making, you think about it in the hiring process, you think about it in the promotion process, you know, that stuff helps matriculate culture. Yeah. And culture is a fuzzy thing, right? You can't. It's alchemy. And some of it comes from the top and some of it comes from the bottom up. But I do think the leadership principles are, you know, every company can choose their own and they can be a bit different, but a really great way of maybe getting to, I'm wandering off the path of your question a bit, <laughs> but that style of how you deal with people, especially 3,000 people in different continents all over the country, you need a shared framework. And I think the leadership principles can be very helpful. I love that. I love that. Listen, disagree and commit is an Amazon principle, as I remember. I think I always love that one. Oh, we stole it. Yeah. I, I stole, stole it from it. Amazon shamelessly because it's a great one. I think that's exactly how they got to a $50 billion ad business, too, because I think Jeff disagreed and they finally said, no, whatever, whatever reason they made a decision, and they went full force. So good for them. Hey, a couple of lightning round questions. They'll be really fast. You ready? Okay. Who in marketing, person, company, could be even a campaign do you most admire? Give an example of somebody. It could be recent. It could be long history. Oh, man. There are so many people that I admire. And this one might go slightly off the beaten path of purely marketing. But Phil Knight, I love the Nike story. I love the initial insight that got him to build a better mousetrap with running shoes, the way he's scrappy, kind of got it going. And then obviously, from a marketing perspective, changed the face of sports and endorsement based advertising and and marketing. And so, and I also just think kind of a really 
contrarian, different guy, charitable, I, you know, a lot to like about him. So I'm, I'm, I'll go with him. Yeah, that's an amazing story because they were really definitely behind. You know, they had a lot of big competitors that were kicking their ass. And so for them to come out, they did incredible. OK, uh, what's most overhyped in marketing today? What do you think we just kind of aren't getting right? Or maybe we're overexcited about, shouldn't be that excited about. You know, it's a tough one because these are kind of boom and bust cycles. <laughs> I might say, this is hearkening back to something, the belief that perfect measurement exists. Oh. And if we can just measure it <laughs> just so, then the answer will present itself. Nah, your, your job is to come up with the decision. Yeah. The measurement helps inform it. It's never going to be a panacea, and I don't think AI is just going to solve the problem for us. Okay, I'll take that. That's good. And I'm a big measurement guy, as you know. So, okay, what's underappreciated marketing? What do you think we're not seeing an opportunity out there yet or that you're seeing you don't think others are yet? Tough one. Mm -hmm. Look, I think that there is a – influencer marketing in some ways is both. I think it's overhyped. And under <laughs> And so I'll, I'll, I'll take the bull case on it. Uh, so there is an overhyped element of it and uh -huh. too much money thrown yeah. at too many Kardashians for too stupid of tweets. Like that's the, that's the overhyped bit. But the underhyped, I do believe that the seminal point of users' attention, consumers' attention, is being more and more tied to personalities. And you see this in certainly the media space where it's the talent, right, that drives it, not the four-letter bug necessarily in, in the corner. I think you see it in the sports space, the NBA in particular. The players are, in my business, player props, huge part of the way people bet, even more so than who's going to win, what team is going to win. People are fans of LeBron, right, regardless of where he's playing. On the underhyped one, I think it's too easy to sort of go for the AAA endorsement, right? The Kardashian, LeBron, et cetera. The gems can be where you find someone with truly, truly authentic relationship, authenticity, right? With their audience yep. and forming a partnership with them, not as... This YouTube video is brought to you by blah, 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 and skip, 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 skip. Something more genuine, more integrated, where you're closer to business partner than you are marketeer and advertising platform. I think that's a little underhyped. You know what? I think I asked that question wrong, didn't I? I really should have said the over and under in marketing. I think I would have asked you, what's the over under, right? I think that <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. No, I, I answered it wrong because it would have been a far more entertaining podcast if I said overhyped influencers and underhyped influencers. I blew it. I completely blew it. <laughs> okay. Well, eventually we're going to get it all right. Listen, there's a lot to learn in marketing. We're still all trying to figure it out. So I appreciate it. Mike, listen, you're the best. I'd love you being on the board. I really appreciate it. I love your perspective. I do agree. Chief commercial officer. I think every marketer should turn to chief commercial officer at this point. It's what we, it's a statement we need to make to the industry and to our bosses. I think so. I don't know. We'll all get there eventually. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you doing it. Greg, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Mike Raffelsberger from FanDuel for coming on Building Better CMOs. Check the show notes for links to connect with Mike. If you want to know more about MMA's work to unlock the power of marketing, visit MMAglobal.com or you can attend any one of our 30 conferences in the 15 countries where MMA operates. Or write me, greg, at mmaglobal.com. 
Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcast. If you're new to the show, please follow or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find links to all those places and more at bettercmos.com. Our producer and podcast consultant is Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Building Better CMOs researcher is Anita Palovska. Artwork is by Jason Chase and special thanks to LaSara Smith. This is Greg Stewart. I'll see you in two weeks.